and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemarie Anque, bringing you readings from the following publications The National Geographic, Afrotech, The Community Voice, Midwestern Newsroom, Blavity, Ebony, MSN, The Grio, and News One. Today we'll begin the continuation of the story from the National Geographic. The story is titled, The Search for Lost Slave Ships Led This Diver on an Extraordinary Journey by Tara Roberts, National Geographic, February 7th, 2022. Maybe by starting at the start, at the beginning of the voyages from those shores to these shores and inside the ships, we can find clues to a history little discussed, to stories that have been lost in the depths. We can begin to assemble long lost threads that help us better understand our obligation to the past and to each other and change the way we think about who we are as society and how we arrived at where we are today. We are deeply connected to those who made the crossing. And we are connected to the estimated 1.8 million souls who perished along the way. The Atlantic Ocean is full of forgotten people, churning with the spirits of folks whose names we may never know, souls who have never been acknowledged or mourned. Dreamers, poets, artists, thinkers, scientists, farmers, more than just cargo or bodies packed in a hold, more than faceless statistics, more than people bound for enslavement. And their day of reckoning is at hand. It is time for their stories to rise from the depths, to be told in their fullness, in their wonder, and with love, with honor, with respect. Finally, helping heal a wound that has festered far too long. That is the dream. That is the promise. That is the possibility of this work, of this watery resurrection that DWP has taken on. These ships allow us to honor those that didn't make it, Bunch says. They allow us to sort of almost touch sacred spaces that are not just spaces of death, but spaces of memory. And that as long as we find those spaces, as long as we dive for these ships, as long as we learn as much as we can, those people whose names we'll never know are not lost. They are remembered. But there is a truth, an obstacle in the way. The wrecks are notoriously hard to find. Ships from that time were primarily made of wood, and they have disintegrated over time and been absorbed by the sea. Searchers today use equipment such as magnometers and side scan sonars to detect unnatural manufactured materials in murky water. The work can take place amid treacherous conditions or at sites teeming with marine life that should not be disturbed. Once you disturb a site, there's no making that site how it was before it's been disturbed, said Ayana Flewellen, F-L-E-W-E-L-L-E-N, a co-founder of the Society of Black Archaeologists an instructor with DPW. So we're really intentional about how we're documenting, 
being cognizant of what is in the water around us to ensure that we're not disturbing the wreck or ocean creatures. The sandy ocean floor covers and reveals as it fancies. What may be seen today may not be seen tomorrow. A proper expedition with historians and archaeologists can take years, but it is important to take as long as is needed to look. Our identities are informed by the past, said Candelia Lee, C-A-L-I-N-D-A, the head of programs and exhibitions for the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. The past provides necessary context, and it is something that we have to engage if we're going to be honest about what race means for us and has meant for us. I learned of DWP from a picture of Black women divers that I saw at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Also in the photo was Ken Stewart, the visionary who got DPW off the ground almost 20 years ago. He had met the lone archaeologist at Biscayne National Park in the Florida Keys. Brenda Lanzerdorf, L-A-N-Z-E-N-D-O-R-F, who needed dive to help find the Spanish slave ship Guerrero, who had wrecked in 1827. As the Southern Regional Representative for the National Association of Black Scuba Divers, Stewart had access to lots of divers. He rounded up a few. They learned how to map shipwrecks. Stewart declared that it was time for the group to dive with a purpose. Since then, DWP has helped document 18 shipwrecks and logged more than 18,000 hours in six countries. Stewart steps with the quickness and the rhythm of an uptown New Yorker. He is meticulously groomed, his salt and pepper beard and mustache as neat as can be, with a beautiful voice that rises and falls with the cadence of a soulful love song. He is my herald, a songbird who called me forth and who continues to encourage me on this voyage. I remember feeling my heart pound and leap as I gave him a resounding yes when he invited me to join them. A yes that started a rolling powerful wave that eventually would wipe my life clean. I would resign from a communications director's job, give up my apartment in Washington, D.C., and siphon funds from my small bank account to travel and get the dives required to participate in the DWP's training program. I joined DWP partly because I wanted this adventure, diving sites around the world, pushing myself physically, but also because I felt lost these past years, as if I don't belong. I am single, have no children, and among my close friends, I'm the only one who has had 10 different addresses in eight cities, three countries, and on three continents in the past 15 years. As a storyteller traveling the world, reporting for magazines and news sites, I felt like a global citizen, but also like a leaf floating in the wind, unrooted, unmoored. Prepared for a journey that I hoped could help me answer one core question. How can finding and telling the lost history of the slave trade help me as a Black American woman figure out where I belong and to whom I belong? This is part two 
of the excerpt titled, The Search for Lost Slave Ships Led This Diver on an Extraordinary Journey by Tara Roberts, National Geographic, February 7th, 2022. My next recording will continue on to part three of these series. The next article is from the Community Voice, the Midwest Newsroom, and is titled, Be Cautious, Contract for Deed or Rent to Own, by the Midwestern Newsroom staff, March 5th, 2022. Most Americans who want to own a house and can afford it follow a fairly straightforward path to their dreams. They start with a loan from a bank or a mortgage company, institutions that are subject to state and federal regulations. When buyers close on the home they want, the agreement is registered with the government, usually at county offices. Americans who do not qualify for a conventional mortgage but still want a house to call their own sometimes opt for a thinly regulated financial arrangement called a contract for deed. In these deals, the sellers function like lenders. They collect an initial down payment and then monthly payments. The buyers in contract for deed agreements usually pay for taxes and insurance, and they often pick up the tab for improvements and repairs on the property, even before they have a title to it. Often, it's only when the buyer makes the final payment that the title of the property shifts from the seller to the buyer. Real estate experts, lawyers, and consumer watchdog groups say these arrangements, as well as similarly structured rent-to-own contracts, rarely end with the buyer owning the home. What tends to happen instead is the buyer loses out through the process called forfeiture, often falling behind on payments while recouping none of the equity they would have built up in a traditional mortgage. For example, when the Pennsylvania Attorney General sued a company that did hundreds to rent to own contracts in that state, it discovered that only 2% of buyers succeeded in obtaining the deed for the property, signifying that they were now homeowners. Contracts can be drawn up in a way that makes it almost impossible to succeed, said Alex Cornia, K-O-R-N-Y-A, General Counsel for Iowa Legal Aid. You lose every dollar that you've put into that house, and the contract seller walks away with a total windfall. In Iowa, there have been nearly 3,700 contracts for deed recorded at county offices since 2008, according to figures furnished to the Midwestern Newsroom by ATTOM, a provider of mortgage data. The numbers were lower in Kansas, Nebraska, and Missouri, but figures likely underreport how many of the deals happen in those states because they have few to no laws requiring that these deals be registered at county offices. Lance Lowenstein, L-O-W-E-N-S-T-E-I-N, an attorney in Kansas City, Missouri, says he sees cases involving these contracts about once a week. Contracts for deed are kind of like the buy 
here, pay here, car lots of the real estate business, he said in an interview in his office in the northeast Kansas City, home to many immigrants and economically struggling communities. Contracts for deed, also known as land contracts, installment sales or bond for deed, proliferated nationally and particularly in the Midwest in the wake of the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. Rent to own, sometimes called leases with an option to purchase, have similar characteristics that often shift the advantage of such transactions to sellers. Investors ranging from small-time buyers with just a few houses to Wall Street hedge funds swooped in after the housing crisis and bought properties in bulk out of foreclosure or from government-sponsored mortgage buyers Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The houses, often uninhabitable or in poor condition and in low-income communities, are typically marketed at those most at risk for exploitation, Black, Latino, or immigrant residents. And while attorneys general in states in the Northeast and Great Lakes region have gone after large-scale contract for deed or rent-to-own sellers who use deceptive tactics, attorneys generally in the Midwest do not often take enforcement action. Tiffany Martino, M-A-R-T-I-N-O. All Tiffany Martino wanted was to buy a home, something my grandkids could come in that was always the same house, she said. About seven years ago, she moved from Gold Beach, Oregon, where she said housing prices were outlandish, to North Platte, Nebraska. Spotted a house she could buy for 78000 Martino could see the place needed some work. The bathroom needed an overhaul. The floor was mostly missing in one room and had to be replaced. The paint was in bad shape, and she would have to do some landscaping. But Martino needed a place to live. At the time when you're in need and you don't got a lot of down payment and somebody is willing to work with you, you're just like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that, she said. Martino made a $1,400 down payment to the owner. He agreed she would make $500 monthly payments until the house was paid off. She understood that she was renting to own. When repairs came up, she would call the owner. He says, you're buying this place. You're responsible for any repairs that occur. You're responsible for any of that, Martino said. She put some $10,000 into the property, which included removing trees and doing some landscape work. And she made about $30,000 in rent payments over those five years. But she fell behind, she says, about $3,000 in arrears, and her landlord took her to court to have Martino evicted. She eventually got in touch with Jeff Eastman, the managing attorney for legal aid of Nebraska, who represented her. Eastman told Martino that she risked having a judge order her to pay the owner if the case went to trial. So they settled. Martino walked away from the house, and the owner did not pursue her back rent. When they, the buyers, leave, they've left their investment in the property, 
and they don't have anything to show for it, Eastman said. Of course, they're quite angry about it, including Martino, who thought she was building towards home ownership. It was actually pretty much a letdown, you know, Martino said. It wasn't a good feeling to know that wasn't the case. And all the money I dumped in there, I don't get that back. It pretty much devastated me, really. Equity stripping. A 2019 study by the Joint Center for Housing Studies of Harvard University outlines an earlier era of contracts for deed in Chicago, where blockbusting and redlining depressed home prices in the 1960s and 1970s. Investors used contract sales to sell properties at inflated prices with high interest rates to people who could not get a conventional mortgage. These contracts were designed to fail, the Harvard study said, allowing the seller to reclaim the property, a form of equity stripping. Taz George, T-A-Z, a senior research analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, said that access to mortgages is an important way for families to build wealth. George, who co-authored the Harvard study, said lenders rarely underwrite loans in low-income communities where homes are priced at less than 100000 and often need repairs. So contract for deed sometimes fill the void. Really, what we found is that communities that have a high number of land contract sales have a host of other housing and economic challenges, George said. Contracts for deed are marketed as a way for people who can't get a conventional mortgage to realize the dream of owning a home. To Cornya, K-O-R-N-Y-A, the Iowa legal aid lawyer, such a pitch echoes that of other enterprise that targets low-income borrowers. That's the exact same argument that payday lenders use. It's nothing new. We need to exploit low-income people because otherwise their lives would be worse, Cornya said. While never ideal, lawyers and experts say contracts for deed can be one of few options for some real estate transactions. Buyers who lack credit history have damaged credit, or who cannot make a down payment, often do not qualify for a loan from banks or mortgage companies. Echoing the Harvard findings, the Joint Center for Housing Studies says traditional mortgage companies are reluctant to make loans in distressed neighborhoods, leaving seller-financed loans or a contract for deed the instrument of last resort. We find the ratio of new mortgage originations to households is one of the strongest predictors of contract for deed activity, the study said. A lack of financial services in low-income communities and, increasingly in rural communities, influences the demand for non-traditional lending agreements. Michael Duffy a semi-retired attorney who has handled dozens of cases involving abuses of real estate contracts, said in spite of the risks, contracts for deed can be useful with responsible sellers. I don't think contracts for deed should be illegal, Duffy said. 
they just need to be more tightly regulated. It's kind of a wild west out there. Iowa tightened enforcement efforts. Iowa tightened some of its land contract laws after a 2003 scandal involving the Woolford Group, W-O-L-F-O-R-D, a family enterprise accused by the Iowa Attorney General of committing fraud when it bought and sold homes under risky land contracts. Iowa sellers cannot enforce a land contract that is not recorded at a county office, and sellers who don't record land contracts after 90 days are subject to daily fines. Ashley Keeler, K-I-E-L-E-R, a spokeswoman for the Iowa Attorney General, said the office still receives complaints about land contracts since the Woolford scandal, and the office handles them as they arise. We have not had any recent litigation, Keeler said in an email. A spokesperson for the Nebraska Attorney General declined to say if the office has brought any enforcement action on contract for deed or rent-to-own sellers. Asked if the Missouri Attorney General has pursued such sellers, a spokesman pointed to a 2014 case in Jackson County where it sued Tri-State Holdings for a contract for deed scam in Kansas City's predominantly Black communities. The Kansas Attorney General did not respond to a request to a request for comment. Attorneys general in other states have pursued large-scale contract for deed operators that have done business in Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, and Missouri. Vision Property Management, a hedge fund-backed enterprise in South Carolina, at one point owned 10,000 properties nationally, including the Midwest, according to a court filing. In 2019, the New York Attorney General sued Vision and its affiliates, portraying its business model as one built on deceptive and abusive practices that gave Vision all the benefits and advantages of being both a mortgagee and a landlord without any of the associated risks or responsibilities of those roles. New York buyers lived in homes that the lawsuit said were uninhabitable. There were pest infestations, bad electric wiring, rotted floors, and roofs and molds and asbestos, among other hazards. Attorney General in Wisconsin, Maryland, and Pennsylvania have pursued claims against Vision. In 2019, FTE Networks acquired Vision. FTE said it was beginning to transition away from Vision's rent-to-own business model, according to a filing with the SEC. FTE still faces litigation related to Vision's business. Vision also faces a class action suit in Michigan, where plaintiffs accuse the business of systematic deception. The company said in an SEC filing in 2020 that it may not have enough liquidity to fund a legal defense and an adverse outcome in those cases could have a material effort on its finances. A seller disappears. It was May 9, 2014, 
when Marciela Orozco, O-R-O-Z-C-O, signed her name alongside that of Mario Lopez to buy his home on the east side of Kansas City, Missouri, for 22000 A friend told her he worked in construction with Lopez, who wanted to sell his house to keep it out of foreclosure. Orozco agreed to pay Lopez $1,800 as a down payment, clearing him of back property taxes before she moved in, according to the paper contract she kept in a folded white envelope. The contract further outlines she would submit $500 in cash every month for 44 months. After a five-day grace period, there would be a $50 late fee with an additional $5 for every additional day. Orozco had seen the inside and knew it was still in rough shape. Walls not done, little bit of bathroom finished, no good plumbing, she said. But I said, okay, we fix it up. And I move in with my kids, fixing things little by little when I have the money. In keeping with the contract for deed model, the tenant is responsible for improvements and repairs to the property. A contract for deed transaction has this fundamental problem that the buyer is being told they have all the duties of home ownership and the burdens of home ownership, but they don't get the protections of the right of foreclosure and they don't have a deed and they don't have a right to sell the home and realize the equity, said Sarah Mancini, M-A-N-C-I-N-I, an attorney with the National Consumer Law Center. So there really is a structural unfairness. At that time, Orozco didn't have authorization to live in the United States and spoke little English. She did not know what a property title was or how it was transferred. It never occurred to her to have a lawyer look over the contract, find out if the title was clear of prior debt, or do a background check on Lopez. She never thought someone from her own community would cheat her. In the Latino community, we try to help each other, she said. We deal with the same issues like language. We don't understand the laws. He believed in me. I wanted to believe in him. After 44 months of regular payments and more than $10,000 in home improvements, Lopez disappeared, never giving Orozco title to the house. Family and friends say he's in Mexico, but they don't know where. Other risks. Getting a clear title is a frequent problem with contracts for deed. Real estate lawyer Lowenstein said he has a current client who has paid off a five-year contract only to learn the title she received is burdened with a mortgage worth 17000 She had no idea until she tried to sell the house. Lowenstein says if the seller doesn't pay off the mortgage, he and his client will go after him in court. But even if this client wins, Lowenstein probably will not be successful in collecting a judgment. If he's not creditworthy and has no assets, it's uncollectible, Lowenstein said. Contracts for deed often mask the true cost of a property. Like Orozco, buyers typically don't ask for an inspection or home appraisal. Orozco was relieved that Lopez accepted a $500 monthly payment all she could afford with her income. She had not considered the cost of making the place habitable, 
replacing the drywall, buying appliances for the kitchen, and repairing the plumbing and electrical systems. It was definitely in the thousands, she said, probably more. Some people who sign contracts for deed end up in troubling situations like the case of Sylvia Juarez, J-U-A-R-E-Z. In the mid-2000s, Juarez got divorced in Kansas City, Missouri, and needed a home for herself and her three young children. Driving around one Sunday, she saw a sign in the yard for sale by owner. She called the number and soon met up with Travis Overs, O-V-E-R-S, who claimed to be the owner of the home. We made an appointment to meet at Denny's downtown, Juarez said. He was very nice and dressed up. He brought along a Spanish-speaking interpreter. She'd only walked around the house one time from the outside, peering in at the windows. When she asked Overs if she could see the inside, he told her no, saying there were others interested in the property and he'd need a decision right away. He said he needed $8,000 for a down payment immediately, or he'd offer the house to someone else. Juarez wanted to get a cashier's check from the bank, but Overs insisted on cash. When she asked to see the title, he said he'd bring it over later. We needed the house, so we gave him the money, fives, tens, twenties, fifties, and he gave us the key. A few months later, there was a knock on the door. Law enforcement officers told her she was being evicted for non-payment of rent. I told them, no, we signed the paper, we gave him the money, and he gave us the key. We went over, cleaned up, and put our stuff in, she said. The next day, sheriff's deputies came and put all the Juarez family's belongings out on the street. It turned out Overs never owned the property at all. Attorney Michael Duffy was able to find Overs and get Juarez's $8,000 down payment back, but she lost all the money she'd paid in repairs and maintenance. Attempts to reach Overs were not successful. Marciela Orozco, who lost thousands of dollars, is still without title to her house seven years later. Her sister is living there, maintaining it and paying the taxes. Lawyers say Orozco won't get a judgment that mortgage or title company will accept unless Lopez, the seller, can be contacted and notified. Meanwhile, he could reappear at any time and take the property back. So even though nobody has come back to say it's not mine, I don't have the papers, Orozco said. All I wanted is to own a home, but this is still not really my house. A St. Louis case. In 2018, Justine wanted to move back to St. Louis. She logged onto Zillow and spotted a house she liked in North St. Louis. It was on an acre of land. It had four bedrooms. It was on the bus line. I fell in love with the house, said Justine, who asked that the Midwest newsroom not use her real name because she's in a program to protect victims of domestic abuse. The listing took her to a company called Joint Ops, which advertised the home. When Justine called, a Joint Ops employee gave her a code to go inside and check the house. Justine who is visually impaired, relied on her then-boyfriend to assess the property. Her boyfriend thought it needed some fixing up, but described the house's needs as mostly cosmetic. A fresh coat of paint would help. Some windows needed replacing. 
Justine lived on Social Security disability and had children to care for. Her total income was about $1,300 a month. Her credit score was low, and that made the prospect of buying a house difficult. A joint ops employee, according to court records, said it had a program that could help her. She would give joint ops a $3,000 down payment and make $500 payments each month afterwards. After two years, she could exercise an option to buy the home for $65,000. They were in a hurry to get me to accept the contract with them, Justine said. She couldn't move in until she had an occupancy permit. When an inspector visited the house, things took a turn for the worse. It was one of those things that, as you go, more damage unfolds, she said. The roof sprung major leaks. There was mold, mildew, and termite damage throughout the house. The paint in the house had dangerous levels of lead. Justine set out to start making repairs while making payments on a house she couldn't live in for 18 months. Joint ops in January 2020 took Justine to court in St. Louis Associate Court when she was $500 one month behind on her payment. I felt really sad, Justine said. This was something my children were all looking forward to moving into this house. I put all our hopes and dreams into this. Robert Sueringen, S-W-E-A-R-I-N-G-E-N, an attorney with legal aid of Eastern Missouri, took Justine's case. He said the terms of the joint ops deal set his client up to fail. What does failure mean? He said failure meant joint ops got to keep all the money and the house. That's kind of a nice deal. You can't lose either way, can you? Swearingen fought joint ops lawsuit with Justine getting back $9,200. Jimmy Vreeland, who started joint ops in 2014, acknowledged the situation with Justine was his company's mistake. We would never do that deal again, he said in an interview. Vreeland said his company rarely does lease with purchase options anymore and that he prefers standard leases because they involve more regulations and legal codes. That's why I like doing regular leases now, because it's so black and white, Vreeland said. Vreeland said lease with purchase options can work in the right situations. When he does do a lease with purchase option, the buyer is typically a contractor who can do all the work of fixing up a house. If you're on the consumer side, I would enter into it with care for sure, Vreeland said. He noted that the next tenant who took up the house Justine tried to buy was able to do the work on the house and is happy with the arrangement. Meanwhile, Justine said her story has a happy ending. After settling her case with joint ops, she was able to get herself into another house in St. Louis County, one she calls a nice place to live. This story comes from the Midwest Newsroom, an investigative journalism collaboration, including KCUR 89.3, IPR, Nebraska Public Media News, St. Louis Public Radio, and NPR. It is titled, Be Cautious, Contract for Deed or Rent to Own, by the Midwest Newsroom, The Community Voice, March 5th, 2022. 
The next article is titled, Hidden Black History, STEM Trailblazers, written by Ebony Staff, Ebony, February 18th, 2022. Part two of Hidden Black History, our four-part series, highlighting unsung pioneers across industries, continues with a look at STEM trailblazers. Black women have always been mothers of invention. That genius, however, isn't always acknowledged. These 10 creators are just a handful of the legions of hidden figures who must be seen. Learn about their prolific contributions in this article from Ebony's HBU STEM Queens commemorative print issue on Stands Now. Marie Van Britten Brown, nurse, home security system. As a nurse who worked long hours with an electronics technician husband who did the same, New Yorker Marie Van Britten Brown was often home alone at night and did not feel safe. So she, along with her husband, Albert, did something about it. In 1969, the Browns received a patent for a home monitoring system with multiple peepholes, a camera, television monitors, two-way microphones, a device to remotely unlock the door, and an emergency button to send an alarm to police or security. Their patent, cited in 32 subsequent patent applications, helped to shape home security as we know it today. Valerie Thomas, scientist, 3D technology precursor. Early STEM trailblazer Valerie Thomas was one of only two women physics majors in her class at Morgan State University in the 1960s. At NASA, where Thomas worked as a data analyst, she developed the illusion transmitter, a precursor to modern-day 3D technology and imaging. Light years ahead of the game, Thomas's transmitter had an impact that reverberates today through television, film, video games, and medical imaging. Patricia E. Bath, ophthalmologist, laser probe cataract surgery technique. Howard University School of Medicine alum, Dr. Patricia E. Bath's many firsts include becoming the first woman to head an ophthalmology training residency program in the country. The Harlem native and co-founder of the American Institute for the Prevention of Blindness is also the first black woman physician to receive a patent for a medical invention. Today, Bath's laser facoprobe technique for cataract surgery, which has restored or improved the sight of millions, is the procedural standard. Joan Murrell Owens, M-U-R-R-E-L-L, -L. marine biologist, new coral, genius, and species. Inspired by Jack Cousteau and fishing trips with her father, Joan Muriel Owens, Ph.D., knew at an early age that she wanted to be a marine biologist. When Fisk University didn't offer that major, she chose art and later earned a graduate degree in guidance counseling, teaching for many years. But she never gave up on her dream. So in her 50s, she earned her doctorate in geology, becoming the first black woman in the country to do so. 
while working with the Smithsonian, the former Howard University professor discovered a new genus and three new species of coral. Bessie Blunt Griffin, physical therapist and forensic scientist, automatic feeding tube. Black women's job opportunities were very limited in the past, but Bessie Blunt Griffin made the best of them. As a physical therapist working with World War II veterans who were amputees, the Virginia native created an automatic feeding tube she later improved on, receiving patents for her inventions. Despite the obvious need, the Veterans Administration would not do business with her, so she donated the rights to France. In her second act as a forensic scientist, she is believed to be the first black woman to train at Scotland Yard. Lisa Gelobter, G-E-L-O-B-T-E-R, Computer Scientist, GIFs, G-I-F-S. GIFs are a staple of social media, and Lisa Gelobter played a role in their development. Her work with pioneering internet technologies, including Shockwave, credited with creating animation on the web, laid the groundwork for a lot of the joy we are experiencing today. The Brown University educated computer scientists made other significant contributions, including bringing her digital expertise to BET networks, serving on the senior management team for the launch of streaming giant Hulu, and even helping redesign the healthcare.gov website while working for the Obama White House. As founder and CEO of T-Quittable, T-E-Q-U-I-T-A-B-L-E, Gelopter used technology to address bias and discrimination in the workplace. June Bacon Bercy, B-E-R-C-E-Y, Meteorologist, Television, Meteorology. Halle Berry and Alexandra Shipp may have played Storm in X-Men, but June Bacon Bercy truly had that weather connect. Acknowledged as the first Black American woman to receive a meteorology degree, the Wichita, Kansas native also has the distinction of being television's first Black woman meteorologist. That happened in Buffalo, New York, when the weatherman was arrested for robbing a bank and she filled in. To encourage others, Bacon Bercy helped establish a scholarship for female students in the field, as well as a meteorology lab at Jackson State University. Norma Merrick Skylarek, S-K-L-A-R-E-K, architect, U.S. Embassy in Tokyo, Terminal 1, at LAX Mall of American in Minneapolis. If you build it, they will come, the saying goes, and build a legacy architect, Norma Merrick Skarlarek did. Many impressive structures include the Pacific Design Center in Los Angeles, the US Embassy in Tokyo, Terminal 1 at LAX, and the Mall of the America in Minneapolis. As the first black woman architect, 
licensed in New York and California, the first Black woman fellow of the American Institute of Architects, and the founder of one of the largest women-owned architectural firms in the country, the New York City native remains a pioneer. There is even an eponymous architecture scholarship in her honor at Howard University. Lida Newman, hairdresser, synthetic bristle hairbrush. Little is known about Lida Newman's life, but her improved hairbrush is well documented. On November 15, 1898, Newman patented her design. While the hairbrush was not new, those available did not serve black hair needs. So Newman, a hairdresser by profession, replaced the widely used animal hair bristles with more durable and hygienic synthetic ones. Because Newman's hairbrush, which also helped straighten the hair, was cost-effective and easy to manufacture, she is often credited for paving the way for beauty entrepreneurs like Madam C.J. Walker. Margaret Morgan Lawrence, Psychiatrist, Children's Mental Health. Born in New York City and raised in Mississippi, Dr. Margaret Morgan Lawrence was haunted by the death of her brother two years before her birth. So she vowed to become a doctor to save other children when she grew up. Achieving that goal, the Cornell University and Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons alum taught at Meharry Medical College, M-E-H-A-R-R-Y. Turning her attention to psychiatry and psychoanalysis is where she arguably made her biggest impact. She was the first Black resident at the New York Psychiatric Institute and later earned her certification in psychoanalysis from Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research. Focusing on children's mental health, she developed some of the earliest child therapy programs for schools, daycare centers, and hospital clinics still in existence today. This article was titled, Hidden Black History, STEM Trailblazers, Ebony Writers, February 18, 2022. The next article is titled, Jamaican Canadian Supermodel Launches Inclusive Sun Care Line by Angela Johnson, The Root, March 7, 2022. Supermodel Winnie Harlow, H-A-R-L-O-W, has always advocated for inclusive representation in the beauty industry. The Jamaican-Canadian model burst onto the scene in 2014 as a 19-year-old contestant on the season 21 of Tyra Banks' competitive show, America's Next Top Model. Since then, Harlow has walked from many of the industry's major fashion houses and even made an appearance in Queen Bay's 2016 Lemonade video. Proper sun care is a priority for Harlow, a.k.a. Chantelle Brown-Young, who suffers from vitiligo, V-I-T-I-L-I-G-O. The long-term condition causes pigmentation in parts of the skin, leaving those areas to look white or pink. Since childhood, Harlow has known 
that protection from the sun's harmful rays is critical because long-term direct sun exposure can worsen her condition. My parents were very adamant about putting sunscreen on me a lot, especially with my family being Jamaican and my dad living in Jamaica, Harlow said in an interview. Every holiday, summer, and spring break, I was in Jamaica visiting my dad, and so I was in the sun a lot. Although she knew she needed to protect her skin from the sun, the model recalls hating the ashy tint it left behind on her skin. But it was a two-day photo shoot in the Bahamas in 2018, which left her badly sunburned, that compelled Harlow to find a more inclusive sun care option for all skin types. During the shoot, the model spent hours in the sun without sunscreen. The crew discouraged her from using sunscreen. They didn't like the way the tint it left on her skin looked on camera. Hours of direct sun exposure without proper skin care left the model badly burned and permanently altered her vitiligo. I got so badly burned, I was like a crispy lobster red, super tight and in pain. I had to have doctors come to the hotel and give injections for pain and inflammation. It was really traumatic, she said. That painful experience left Harlow determined to create better and more inclusive sun care products and gave her the idea to launch K-Skin, C-A-Y, a sun care line for all skin types. Available on Sephora.com and the K-Skin website, the line currently includes body oil, lip balm, and face lotions that are intended to be light and gentle on the skin. Every product in the K-Skin line is dermatologist tested, vegan, and cruelty-free. When it came to getting her passion project off the ground, Harlow was intimately involved in every detail. Everything from the product name, K, a reference to small low islands in the Caribbean, to the ingredients, sea moss, hydrating nectar, and shea butter, takes inspiration from Harlow's Caribbean roots. She was even intentional about the design and color of the sustainable packaging that matches her skin tone. She says she wanted to create a product that everyone wanted to use, regardless of age or gender. I wanted it a representative of everyone under the sun, from light to dark, she said. Sun care is for everyone under the sun. K Skin products will be available for purchase in Sephora stores beginning April 1st. Beginning April 1st. This article is titled, Jamaican Canadian Supermodel launches inclusive sun care line by Angela Johnson, March 7th, 2022. The next article is titled, Katanji Brown Jackson receives endorsement from U.S. Black Chambers, written by the Grio staff, March 7th, 2022. Per The Hill, the U.S. Black Chambers represents a network of 145 Black Chambers of Commerce and Black-owned business organizations from cities across the nation. They named several reasons for offering Jackson their support in a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee, 
citing her experience working in service to the public. In addition to having served as a public defender in her role as Vice Chair of the United States Sentencing Commission from 2010 to 2014, Jackson was influential in lowering mandatory minimums for crack cocaine. Further, the group noted that Jackson's confirmation would fill a need for equitable representation on the court. There has not been a black liberal serving on the Supreme Court since the late Thurgood Marshall. The history-making qualities of this nomination are overshadowed only by Judge Jackson's breadth of experience in our legal system, making her an exceptionally qualified choice for the role of Supreme Court Justice, asserted Ron Busby, B-U-S-B-Y, U.S. Black Chamber's president and CEO in his letter to Democratic Senator Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin, D-U-R-B-I-N, of Illinois and ranking Republican member Chuck Grassley, G-R-A-S-S-L-E-Y, of Iowa, according to The Hill, which obtained a copy. This diverse and broad experience in public service imbues Judge Jackson with a unique appreciation of how critical it is for the justice system to be fair and impartial, Busby continued. Among her colleagues and in her work, Judge Jackson has built a strong reputation for upholding the rule of law with a nonpartisan, inclusive approach to advancing a judicial system that treats all Americans fairly. If confirmed, Judge Jackson would be the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court, fulfilling a promise Biden made while campaigning for the White House. She has been making rounds, meeting with senators from both parties ahead of her confirmation hearings, which are slated to begin on March 21st. It is unclear if support for her nomination will be bipartisan. Republicans Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins supported her confirmation to the U.S. Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia Circuit last year. According to its website, the U.S. Black Chambers is affectionately known as the national voice of Black businesses that provides committed, visionary leadership and advocacy in the realization of economic empowerment. Through the creation of resources and initiatives, we support a network of African-American chambers of commerce and business organizations in their work of developing and growing Black enterprises. Jackson has not responded to remarks by Fox News host Tucker Carlson, who questioned why President Biden did not share her LSAT scores when listing of her accomplishments during his State of the Union address last week. As previously reported, the conservative personalities' comments were largely denounced as another racist dog whistle and an attempt to mar what are considered impeccable qualifications. This article is titled, Ketanji Brown Jackson receives endorsement from U.S. Black Chambers by the GRIO staff, 
the Grio, March 7, 2022. The next article is titled, Aaliyah's High School and Kith to Drop an Exclusive Capsule Collection in Her Honor by Dante Ramos, Lavity News, March 8, 2022. In celebrating International Women's Day, Aaliyah's Alma Mater, the Detroit School of Arts, DSA, fashion brand Kith, K-I-T-H, and Aaliyah Estate and renowned photographer Robert Whitman are releasing a collaborative capsule collection in her honor. The overall goal of this capsule is to uplift the next generation of female students by using DSA's platform to share their talents and perspectives. All proceeds donated will be distributed between the school and the organization, Support the Girls, a nonprofit that collects and distributes essential items for women and children facing homelessness. The line features never-before-seen pictures of Aaliyah on clothing in honor of her life and includes a range of hoodies, crews, and vintage tees. There are widespread designs for loyal fans to browse through, from a cream short sleeve graphic t-shirt with the hit lyrics, Let Me Know, sloganed on the front of the classic cropped baby girl crew neck. Alongside the captured clothing, a short film was released, diving into Aaliyah's legacy and the impact she's made on the Detroit School of Arts students. Aaliyah, to me, she's the queen. Senior at the Detroit School of Arts, Demaya Johnson, D-E-M-I-A, said. Lauren Simmons, a junior at DSA, spoke of the importance of representing the trailblazers, pave the way while continuing to push forward, making a name for yourself. Be somebody, make a name for yourself, and also represent the names that came before you. Because just like with DSA, I represent DSA, but also we're representing Aaliyah's name, Simmons said. Aaliyah graduated from the Detroit School of Arts with a 4.0 GPA, which now houses a recital hall named in her honor. This article is titled, Aaliyah's High School and Kith to Drop an Exclusive Capsule Collection in Her Honor by Dante Ramos, Blavity News, March 8, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Ankwe. Thank you for joining me.